This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. The best time to control many winter annual weeds with herbicide is in the fall. Although it has been very dry and there really aren't many weeds out there, even the recent little rains is enough to get them to germinate. This time of year, they are small and they don't seem like much, but once they bolt in the spring, they can be hard to kill. Currently, the winter weeds are still germinating, so waiting to spray during a mild stretch in mid-November can be ideal. They are small and inconspicuous, but they are there. It is a good idea to include with the burn down and a residual herbicide to get coverage into the spring. This time of year, the soils are cooler, so residuals will last a little longer as well. Two of our main winter annuals that are hard to control are henbit and marestel. But pennycrest, dandelions, downy brome, and many others can all be problematic winter annuals in the field. Marestel is prevalent here in eastern Kansas, and this weed has been finding its way into the herbicide-resistant weeds list. We mostly think of henbit as a weed weed, but although henbit stays small in the spring, it can be hard to plant through, and it could shade young corn seedlings. In pasture, now is also a good time to control must thistles. For burn down, glyphosate 2,4-D and Nicamba are some of our main options. Although it can be hard to find some chemicals, and the prices have gone up considerably, group on herbicides like Selthodum, the herbicide in Select, Quasoflop, the herbicide in Assure, can be used to control grasses. Broadleaf herbicides can include Paraquat or Sulfurin, the herbicide in Sharpen. For residual, Atrazine is cheap and effective. However, it can only be used if the plan is to plant corn or sorghum in the spring. Atrazine has some rate and location restrictions as well. Atrazine used in November should have enough carryover to provide some control for early germinated summer annuals. It can be mixed with 2,4-D, Dicamba, or Sharpen to provide a better control of Maristel. Atrazine doesn't control brome or volunteer weed once they have tillered, so therefore it should be mixed with glyphosate and an AMS injunct. For soybeans, fall herbicides include 2,4-D, Dicamba, Sharpen, Valor XLT, and many others. The addition of glyphosate can help control the winter grasses. Some weeds, especially Maristel, can have a herbicide resistance to glyphosate, atrazine, ALS herbicides like Valor or Classic. It is important to use herbicides with different modes of action and to follow herbicide instructions on the rate of usage. Another issue is that residual herbicides eventually lose their effectiveness and will control weeds into the summer months. Most residual herbicides last a little longer during the winter months, but the effectiveness is reduced when soil temperatures, biological activity, and soil moisture increases. And most residual herbicides need at least some amount of rain before they become active. How long the residuals will last depends on the winter weather, and a spring application of residuals could be needed. For more information on weed control winter annuals and crops, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. with the Wildcat Extension District, your livestock production agent. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a standardized method to gauge the condition of cattle, or any animal species for that matter? Well folks, let me tell you about the body condition scoring method. This assessment of relative fatness is a scale from one to nine. A score of one is an animal that is emaciated, has every rib showing. 
and the score of nine is roly-poly fat with large pones at the tail head. When evaluating your livestock, you'll be looking at the spine, ribs, hooks and pins, tail head, brisket, and the muscling in the round and shoulder. Don't be fooled by long hair, gestation stage, or rumen fill. This is an excellent and free tool to appraise nutritional needs of your animals. I recommend taking mental note of condition every time you lay eyes on your livestock, but make a physical note in a record book at the same time each year, say 60 to 90 days before birthing, at birthing, or at weaning. The goal for cows is a score of five at calving. A score of five means that the spine bumps and the ribs are not visible. The hooks and pins are visible. There's some fat in the brisket area and her muscling will be full. You can gauge the muscling by the roundness of the thigh. Scores below five and above six can lead to rebreeding problems after birthing. Additionally, Malnutrition during gestation can lead to fetal problems and affect milk production. Nutrition becomes even more crucial with heifers, gilts, does, and young ewes. The males in each species should not be neglected. Bulls need to be at a five and a half to six and a half at the start of each breeding season. Undernourished sires will be less active and the service quality can be poor depending on the fat thickness in the reproductive system. Remember to keep it simple and consistent. You will likely gauge your livestock slightly different than your neighbor, so be sure to do your own work. Looking at herd or flock body condition averages is a visual representation of how your nutritional program affects your livestock. Observing individual body condition scores allows you to sort animals with similar nutritional needs into management groups or even to identify animals that should be called because they do not fit your environment. Also, you can use these scores to know when it's time to wean or other management events rather than a calendar. If you'd like to know more, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, natural resource and diversified ag agent with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the agriculture and natural resource agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. If you are considering planting a winter food plot, Knowing the nutrient levels of the soil before planting will help you determine if you need to add fertilizer to the soil. Correct soil sampling in the field is essential for an accurate soil test and consequently for an optimum nutrient management program. To obtain a proper soil sample, there are a few guidelines to follow. Start with the right equipment. You will need a soil probe, a clean bucket, and a few plastic bags or soil sample bags. The extension offices have soil probes that you can borrow to collect your soil sample. Map it out. Draw a map of the sample area and divide it into uniform areas. Each area should have the same soil texture, color, slope, and fertilization and cropping history. 
start sampling. For the standard pH, buffer pH, P and K test, sample 6 inches deep and take 10 to 15 core samples from each area. Moving in a zigzag across the area will help to get a more representative sample. Mix thoroughly in the clean bucket. Fill your soil collection bags from this mixture, making sure that there are about two cups of soil in each bag. For available nitrogen, chloride, or sulfur tests, take the same number of cores, but a subsoil sample to a depth of 24 inches is necessary. It is also important to note that if a zinc test is requested, use a plastic bucket for soil collection as galvanized or rubber materials may contaminate the results. Places to avoid. Avoid taking samples from old fence rows, dead furrows, low spots, feeding areas, or other areas that might give unusual results. If information is desired from these unusual areas, obtain a separate sample from that area. Label. Be sure to label the soil container clearly. Record the sample identification on the container and the information sheet. Keep records as to where the soil samples were taken and the name that was given for each sample. Send samples. Once all the soil is collected from these desired areas, take the samples to your local K-State Research and Extension office. We will then send the samples to the K-State Soil Testing Laboratory to be analyzed. Generally, you can expect results back within two weeks. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Sweet potatoes are one of the most nutrient-dense crops you can plant in your garden and one of the easiest to grow as well. Sweet potatoes are grown from vegetative propagules known as slips, which develop the root and vine simultaneously. Vines can get up to 10 feet long in the best growing conditions, so it's important to give them enough space to stretch by planting slips 9 to 18 inches apart in a row, with rows 3 to 4 feet apart. Slips should be planted 3 to 4 inches deep in the soil after the temperature gets above 60 degrees in the soil. In Kansas, they are usually planted in mid-May to avoid any potential of a late frost, which will kill off the vine. Sweet potatoes mature anywhere from 95 to 120 days after planting, depending on which variety you are growing. Pulling or cutting the vine a couple of days before harvesting will toughen the skins and reduce damage from harvest. Expect a yield of around 2 pounds of tubers per hill and 400 bushels per acre. After harvest, sweet potatoes need to be stored in a warm, humid room of at least 85 degrees and 90% relative humidity for about a week. This process, known as curing, will increase sugar content, heal damage from harvest, and deepen the orange color of the flesh. After curing, store in a cool, humid environment until ready for eating or selling. Sweet potatoes can be stored for 6 to 10 months in the right conditions. Sweet potatoes have very few pests that will attack the crop, but a few to keep an eye out for are flea beetles, the sweet potato weevil, and wireworms. 
Any pest that targets the vine will have minimal impact on the yield of the crop, so it's important to balance that fact with the damage seen. If damage is tolerable, consider manual control instead of insecticide application, as you could accidentally kill off natural predators along with the pests. The sweet potato weevil and wireworm will be responsible for most of the damage to the tubers, and if selling sweet potatoes at market, these will necessitate post-harvest control. Crop rotation will also ensure that these specialist pests cannot build up their respective populations over multiple growing seasons. Ornamental sweet potato vines will also produce tubers, but these tubers will not be as tasty or large as those bred specifically for food production. The ornamental varieties were bred specifically for their foliage characteristics and not their tubers, so although they are edible, it is best to let the ornamental varieties be ornamental and the food varieties produce your tubers. Unlike other vegetables, the quality of sweet potatoes does not degrade with increased size, but all tubers should be handled with care until they have a chance to cure so that you don't accidentally bruise your crop. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.